Willa Cather was an American writer, perhaps best known for her trilogy of novels uh, depicting life on the Great Plains. They include O Pioneers, The Song of the Lark, and My Antonia. In 1923, Cather won the Pulitzer Prize for a novel called One of Ours, set during World War I. She's uh, known for transporting readers to new places and for inspiring many people with her works over the decades. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Richard Norton Smith, I uh, recently watched a clip of you at our website talking about Willa Cather, and you said you've always been drawn to her as an historical and literary figure. Tell us why. Oh, gosh. Um, well, all right, let me go ahead and personalize this. I um, grew up in a little town in Massachusetts, which is just a few miles from Jaffrey, New Hampshire, where she um surprisingly to some people, because, of course, they think of her as a great Nebraska author, um, chose to be buried. Uh, it was also the place where she did some of her best work, um, which, and we can talk about this later on, that she had a very ambivalent kind of love-hate feeling, if you will, about Red Cloud, Nebraska, and uh, uh, the, 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 the New York in which she grew up, and she found something in New England uh, and, and, of course, she you know, lived in New York City a whole lot longer than she ever lived in Red Cloud. But that just begins to hint at the incredible range of this woman's life and and her work. So I actually visited her grave site up in Jaffrey Center in the shadow of Mount Monadnock um, before I ever read one of her novels. And then in the summer of 19... 19- 76, I uh, I sat down and read them all, and um, all but one. It took me <laughs> several years to get to that. But, but anyway, and um, to, to tell you the impact they have, I remember there's a PBS did a wonderful documentary. You can find it online. It's called Willa Cather, The Road is All, and it's about 25 years old, but it's just superb. And among the on-camera interpreters of Cather is David McCullough. And um, he, he sort of answers the question that, that you asked. And he, he, again, he personalized it. He said there's a feeling about her writing. When you read that book, My Antonia, the feeling you, you get from that book, you, 10 years later, you can still conjure up that feeling. There's something, um, it's a combination of landscape, um, one of Cather's hallmarks is the, the environment, the physical environment, is perhaps the leading character in her, in the stories that she tells. And and I read a book called Shadows on the Rock, um, which is not widely known today. It was written in 1931. It's um, set in 17th century Quebec, historical fiction. And I was so mesmerized by the experience that I booked a flight to Quebec City. And I've been back half a dozen times since. 
I had a similar experience. Uh, probably her best regarded novel was called Shadows, uh, not Shadows, um, Death Comes for the Archbishop in 1927, I believe. Anyway, um, set in and around Santa Fe, New Mexico. And, and again, I got on a plane and I flew there because I had to see for myself these um, places and this culture and these people that Cather had depicted so memorably. So, it, you know, it's, it's that. I mean, I don't know if people read Mark Twain and feel they have to go to Hannibal, you know, or F. Scott Fitzgerald and they have to head for Long Island. But, but there's something about Cather's ability to breathe life into an, another period. She, you know, she's a great historian, not an academic historian, but a literary historian, um, in that she can depict a period three, four hundred years in the past with absolute credibility. Um, and you live in it for a few hundred pages, and then if you're like me, you decide, I want to live in it for, you know, a few days longer. Did Willa Cather have other interests growing up? And then where did that spark, or when did that spark occur for her to be a writer? When did she realize she had that talent? That's a great question. She was born in 1873, um, which meant she was kind of a a child of the post-Civil War era in rural Virginia. And when she was nine years old, her father moved the family to Nebraska. And um, there's this remarkable uh, scene where, where she looks upon this landscape for the first time, and, and, and she can't believe what she isn't seeing. She doesn't see trees. She doesn't see the shrubs. She doesn't see gardens. Um, she said, it's not even a country. It's, it's the pieces out of which a country are made. And she said for the first year or so, both she and her mother never stopped crying. Uh, the contrast between the comfortable ways that they had known in Virginia and this strange, almost lunar landscape. But um, she had lifelong, she was blessed with all sorts of talent, and one of them was a talent to curiosity. She um, was also a nonconformist from the beginning. When she was 14 years old, she went to the barber and had her hair all cut off. Um, she thought she'd be a doctor. She befriended the local doctors in Red Cloud. Uh, and she made the acquaintance um, through them of the immigrant families that had, uh, you know, we, we often mistakenly think that the immigrant experience is defined by the lower east side of Manhattan. And to some degree it is. But, it, but Cather is the author who introduced us to the immigrant experience in the American heartland. And she befriended Bohemians and Scandinavians and Germans, and she listened to their stories. I think that's where she first perhaps uh, picked up that that um, unique gift she had for listening uh, before she could relate her, herself. She went to the University of Nebraska, thought to... Um, Again, thought she'd be a doctor. and um, But once she saw a teacher without telling her, uh, actually submitted an essay she'd written on Thomas Carlyle, 
to the uh, um, the Lincoln newspaper, and it changed her life. She said uh, there was something about seeing her words in print that was almost hypnotic. And um, that really is the origins, I suppose, of of her her, of her professional uh, career uh, as a writer. She um, moved to Pittsburgh. Again, we we always think of Cather as a Nebraska author. That's like saying Robert Frost is a New Hampshire poet. Um, the, the fact is, she actually lived in Red Cloud West Time than she did in Pittsburgh. Uh, she went to Pittsburgh to edit a women's magazine. She also supported herself as a high school English teacher. Um, and she was learning her craft. She was writing poetry and short stories. And she befriended a woman named Isabel McClung, who became her, her dearest friend. Um, they traveled the world together, um, discovered Europe together. Um, Cather became a lifelong Francophile. She adored French literature, French cooking. Um, and um, uh, in 1903, uh, still in Pittsburgh, she published a volume of poetry called April Twilights. Three years later, uh, S.S. McClure, the great muckraking journalist whose magazine was probably the... the uh, uh, the premier publication of its kind. Anyway, he hired Cather to be his editor, which is really remarkable. You stop to think this woman who was at that point about 33 years old from Red Cow, Nebraska, uh, editing perhaps the most influential uh, magazine in America. Um, and she did that for several years, wrote her first novel, called Alexander's Bridge in 1912. She was almost 40 years old. She regarded it as a failure afterwards because it wasn't her voice. She was under the sway of Henry James, um, whom she admired extravagantly. But it was only when she, in effect, um, listened to her own voice and went back um, intellectually, emotionally, to the Nebraska Prairie um, that she became Willa Cather and um, wrote a trilogy of her prairie novels, uh, O Pioneers, um, My Antonia, and The Song of the Lark. And um, um, by 19, well, let's see, 1923, she wrote a World War I novel, which is still somewhat controversial, uh, but it won the Pulitzer Prize for, for that year. In the 1920s, she said famously, the world broke in half around 1922. And she never really explained exactly what she meant by that. But the impression we have is the Great War destroyed the world of her, her upbringing and in many ways of her values. Um, as the 20s faded into the 30s and the Great Depression took hold, and literary tastes changed. There were a lot of literary critics, particularly on the left, who basically went after her, who thought that she was traditionalist and backward-looking. Um, she became increasingly drawn to the Catholic Church, which you can see, again, at the centerpiece of those two books I mentioned, Shadows on the Rock and Death Comes for the Archbishop. 
and um, her last novel, Sapphira and the Slave Girl, um, which allowed her to dredge up her girlhood in Virginia, was published in 1940. Um, Her health declined after that, and um, she died in April 1947. And again, to the surprise of many, uh, asked to be buried uh, in Jaffrey, New Hampshire, not far from the old Shattuck Inn, which was a place where she used to retreat because of its seclusion. And she did uh, some of her best writing there. Um, her lifelong partner was a woman named Edith Lewis, uh, who was herself an editor um, and uh, very much uh, conversant with the book trade. And uh, um, when Edith died in 1972, she was um, laid to rest next to Willa. Along with the uh, critical acclaim that Willa Cather enjoyed, did she have commercial success with her writing? She did. That's a it's a, a important point. She is um, an unusual writer in a lot of ways, um, and one of them is that she combined real literary artistry with mass popular success. Uh, it took a while. My Antonia, for example, was kind of her introduction. Uh, the critics loved it. It wasn't a huge popular success. But in the 1920s, she took off. She wrote five novels in the 1920s. Hollywood bought um, a book called A Lost Lady, which was not a very good movie, and um, it determined her never to allow it to happen again. Um, But it did raise her public profile. Um, Her later books, for example, would typically be Book of the Month Club selections, would sell several hundred thousand copies. And this is in the Depression-era America. Um, The interesting thing, why, for a long time, she was almost a cult figure, and that's because, in part because of the, uh, I think, the experience that she'd had, the really bad experience with Hollywood. In her will, she stipulated uh, in the strongest possible terms that no one could quote from her letters. There were to be no plays produced. There were to be no movies made, um, you know, no depiction uh, of of her stories uh, or novels uh, could 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 take place, and the, the fact of the matter is, it's only a few years ago when her nephew passed away that we got our first um, significant volume of Cather letters, um, five hundred and sixty six to be precise, and um, and you can imagine. I mean, first of all, she turns out to be a, a wonderful letter writer. And um, a woman who guarded her privacy as um, as fervently as she did, um, you can understand why. If you read her letters, they are very revealing. Um, and uh, we're still learning. We There are now over 2,000 of her letters that have been made public, and no doubt there are many more. She burned all of her own. She burned hers. I believe Edith Lewis burned their correspondence. Um, she asked friends to do likewise. Fortunately, many of them did not. So we're still we're still learning. You mentioned uh, somewhat of a private person. Was she was she political at all in any significant way? You know that's interesting. Um, she's thought of as something of a literary conservative. Um, I'm not sure I know what that means. I, I, she came under criticism 
from uh, certainly New Deal sympathetic critics and um, and left wing literary critics, people like Granville Hicks and Edmund Wilson, uh, who who just thought she was um, her crime was being old fashioned, um, and perhaps you know it was conservative or it seemed conservative uh, at the time for her to be as uh, uh, increasingly wedded to organized religion as as she was. But it was, you know, the old values. I have to say, there are some books that Cather wrote that you almost have to be attain a certain age and have lived a certain amount uh, to fully appreciate. Um, my favorite Cather novel is called The Professor's House. It was uh, published, I believe, the same year as The Great Gatsby. By the way, Scott Fitzgerald said that Cather was more successful with My Antonia than he was. And I, I don't mean commercially. I mean, I think he meant artistically uh, than he was with The Great Gatsby. The Professor's House is a classic Cather novel. There's not a lot of plotting. Um, what happens is less significant than um, what you experience as a reader. Um it's almost a mirror held up to you as a reader. Um, it's a, there's a, a, a professor named Godfrey St. Peter, who is of a certain age and who has completed his eight-volume masterwork, History of Spain in the New World. And so basically his career is pretty much behind him. He's in a more or less loveless, or at least unromantic marriage. His daughter's pretty much care mostly about clothes and money. Um, and and he's, you know, at an age when what are you living for? What are you looking forward to? Uh, what's your sense of purpose? And um, basically he's, he's made the money that he can gratify their desires to build a new house. And he builds the new house only to discover that he is incapable emotionally or otherwise of leaving the old house. So while his family lives next door in the spanking new modern convenient house, um, Professor St. Peter, who's obviously a stand-in for Willa Cather, uh, remains um, in in um, in the most familiar surroundings. Anyway, it's it's a marvelous sort of semi-psychological novel, and I would recommend it to anyone. In the uh, years and decades that uh, followed after her passing, who did she influence? Uh, what writers out there did she influence? And what would you say her, her lasting legacy is? Gosh. You know, I don't know. I um, I can only cite people like McCullough, um, and, I, and I, I'm sure there are many other people who appreciate great writing, first of all. Um, which I would think would be most writers, but but the sense, particularly for writing history, uh, because although she may not be a trained historian, as I said, she does have this um, instinctive capacity to credibly uh, put you in another time and place and culture, and um, I think that's probably the thing that I would point to 
the most. Um, I also think that as obviously as society has evolved, for example, in its attitude about same-sex relations, she has become a cultural icon um, in ways that I suspect uh, never would have occurred to her, and I'm not at all sure would make her comfortable. But but she is um, is um, is an iconic figure as the letters become available. Um, it also is expanding uh, beyond the sort of cultish um, confines of, of readers who sort of handed the book to, to a friend and say, hey, you've got to read this, uh, you know, sort of thing. Um, no, I think time, time has been <clears throat> good to her. I mean, I think back to something Hemingway was, could not have been more condescending or patronizing when he, of course, who thought of himself as a great warrior, uh, resented the fact that she won the Pulitzer for a war book. Um, and he, he specifically claimed that she got her war scenes from the movies and said, poor woman, in his words, you know, she had to get her war experiences somewhere. Now, we wouldn't put up with that for five minutes today, but that suggests the critical environment in which she was operating during her lifetime. And I think it, I think what she overcame and the fact that she, from her earliest years, is a kind of stand-in for nonconformists, however you define the term, gives her um, an almost a universality of appeal that I'm not sure during her lifetime um, anyone would have necessarily uh, diagnosed. Historian Richard Norton Smith, as always, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Books That Shaped America podcast. For more information about the series, you can visit our website, cspan.org slash books that shaped America. And remember to follow this podcast so you never miss an episode.